0: Namaste, and welcome to the Vichar Manthan podcast. My name is Sumit Sharma, and it's my great privilege to be hosting this project. If you haven't tuned in to any of the previous episodes, you can find us on Spotify and all your favorite streaming platforms. The VM podcast is a Vichar Mantan project looking to explore modern day issues through a dharmic lens, in hopefully a relaxed and engaging manner. I'm quite excited today to bring back Divya Prabha to the podcast. Divya Ji has been on the Vichar Manthan platform before. We have recorded uh, a live session actually a few years ago. And Divya Prabha is the founder of the International Chandra Charitable Trust. Uh, she was born in the UK did her BA and her MA from Oxford and she used to work for a top American investment bank. And I think today we're going to find a little bit about why and where someone who uh, travels in these circles, works at a top investment bank, is now not doing that. It's doing something vastly different. Uh, Divya Ji, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me here, it's really great to be back with you.
0: Thank you and so we met a few years ago at Weddings Versus Marriages, uh, a VM that I hosted in London live pre-COVID and I think we had a lot to uncover and and at the time I wasn't married and and now I am so there may be some uh, a new podcast that we might need to record as a result.
1: Look forward to that, that's for sure.
0: So Divya Ji, Let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. So I, I think you've got quite an interesting life and, and a story to tell. Um, so we're going to try and uncover that today for some of our listeners. Let's rewind. Let's go back in history. Let's find out what Divya as a young child was like. What was, what was childhood? What was schooling? What were the things that fascinated you?
1: Um, I was always fascinated to learn about everything. I was very, very inquisitive from the earliest uh, of times and I remember that as a four-year-old my grandparents used to like to take me to all of their friends houses and all of the things that they used to go to and apparently I used to talk a lot as a four four-year-old um in a very engaging way no idea what I was talking about but, and then at the other end of the spectrum life was growing up in the countryside in A world very different from today in terms of on my bicycle, riding down country little lanes, and just with a group of friends. um, And a lot of freedom, you know, those English summers that uh, everybody gets to enjoy uh, were really led to a very magical, innocent existence, you know, with things like playing the famous five in little sheds and um, things like that but at the same time life felt very ethereal in a sense i had the sense of unlimitedness even at the earliest of ages and my my mother and my parents were i wouldn't say alternative but they were maybe not as mainstream as many parents can be and so there was a lot of possibilities to explore and they um, indulged all of my creativity um, and my inquisitiveness and schooling as well they gave me every opportunity in terms of education and sport as well Uh, my father was and grandparents were like mad on sport
0: what what, what, what was your favorite sport then
1: oh if tennis uh, skiing and hockey probably would be my um, my it'd be difficult to choose between okay. the three of those
0: awesome and and do you still play
1: not anymore I I haven't played for a long time now I, actually once I started doing uh, yoga practices in terms of the postures and pranayama and uh, meditation. I never looked back at any of the other sport. I found that I was actually much stronger doing yoga than I ever was doing sport. And at university, we used to train up to three hours a day because um, wow. I did. I you know played five sports um, at a university level, so it was very very serious. And then discovering yoga and discovering that I was way stronger doing yoga than I ever was yeah. uh, doing all that.
0: I think yoga's. I mean, obviously, it's fundamental to a lot of things. But a lot of the Olympic teams and and serious sports stars out there now swear by yoga and well, I should say, yogic physical activities and and pranayamas. Yoga is a, an entire body outside of that.
1: I mean, pranayama, I would say, is a a key uh, a key training tool. Or for physical sports people as well mm. and and not to be underestimated i mean if you think about um, tennis players when they're playing at you know us open and wimbledon mm. levels the serve is moving faster than you are able to see and so That's what incredible. is it that enables them to see that and it's meditation wow otherwise how can they receive the ball it's that meditation really is that concentration that one-pointedness and that is what um enables them to be aware of where that ball's coming amazing tuning into it
0: being yeah being in touch almost with the fabric of nature i don't know it sounds a bit esoteric but definitely and and that's a life science a life skill you could apply to any sphere of life not just tennis. absolutely um, but I imagine you could you could go skiing on the Kashi Mountains, right? That uh, would be <laughs> on your doorstep.
1: Um, could probably.
0: <laughs> so lots of sports. Um, is there a moment in your childhood where you remember being particularly adamant or uh, together about believing in something?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, um, from the earliest of ages, I was um, questioning things. And I remember, I mean, at eight there was only so much you could question at at that little small body size but at 13 there's a particular incident at boarding school um, where I was at a um, a Catholic boarding school and we were being given weekly lessons about how to make decisions and one of the things that was brought up was doing confirmation which um, anyone who's looked at Christianity knows that that's kind of like an important thing they do a bit like a sanskar kind of thing. And in confirmation, they promise to life to life for life to be a Christian. And so in, in that topic, they brought up um, talking about sin. And they were telling us that if you don't go to church on Sunday, it's a sin. So me being me, put up my hand and said, well, what about if you couldn't go on Sunday and you went on Tuesday, is that still a sin? And they answered, yes. And I were.
0: You didn't like that?
1: Not at all. I started um, telling them these are man-made rules. There's no way that God could say that, that you couldn't go on Sunday and you went on Tuesday and still, still that's a sin. I said, I don't need, I don't need your rules. I've got God inside me. And um, I know and the difference between right and wrong. What, what you're telling here isn't needed by me. And um, I said some more things as well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it led to my parents being called to school who were terrified oh, no. about what I had done, you know. Because you know, when you you're a fee-paying school, the last thing your parents want is you to be expelled, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> and so they thought what, that I was what would
0: society say, hey?
1: Exactly. That that's the big problem, and and also. I think the financial pressure, now that I'm an adult, I understand, I understand. the financial pressure that would have put my father under um, because he lived very simply to put us through school. And what happened when they came in was that um, my housemistress had been at some point the Pope's driver.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: she was an elderly lady and she was sitting with her hands like um, you know, on top of each other and very earnestly telling my parents that I'd done something very, very serious. So my mother's sitting there thinking, oh, my God, what's she done? Mm. Um, and Lucy's refusing to be confirmed. And my mother lost it. Oh dear. She said, is that what you've called us oh, here for? no! <laughs> my daughter doesn't want to get confirmed. If she doesn't want to get confirmed, that's fine by me. If this isn't her path, she'll find her own path. I, I know that my daughter's, um, you know, a good person and she'll find her own way. It's not a big deal to me if um, she doesn't want to get confirmed. And so then the negotiations opened about what they would do with me. Oh, dear. If <laughs> I could stay at school or not stay at school.
0: It's amazing to hear, you know, mother being so supportive I've had I've had similar situations where I've been in trouble at school and and my mum stepped in and in fact I probably I probably owe my mum a whole great deal they at one point they didn't want to let me continue doing IT I I can't remember why I'm sure I got the grades and mum came in was like no like this is his future and here I am years later a a senior IT consultant so yeah I think I think we all owe our moms a great deal uh, even if we're absolutely
1: they're our first teacher. Mm. You know, and they um where there may there may be bumpy way bumpy um parts along the way, um, they are our mothers. Mm. You know, and they they do know us very well. Very but it, it's quite surprising to me <laughs> that you could get into trouble at school, I have to say. Really?
0: Oh <laughs> man, I better not tell anymore. There's there's a whole bunch <laughs> of stories where that came from. But um, we're we're focusing on you today, Divya G, and, and uncovering <laughs> what your life has entailed. So let's let's move past schooling. Let's uh, so so after university, so you went to Oxford. Um, what did you study there?
1: As the science of materials and
0: metallurgy. Okay, and where did that lead you on to?
1: That took me into the city actually, because when I was doing a research project at a um, big multinational, I realized that I was the only person reading the newspaper in the library. And this concerned me um, because um, since the um, the earliest parts of my life, I'd always been fascinated by everything, wanting to know everything about everything and asking everybody about everything. And that, I mean, that's how I even got into Oxford by reading an article in the, um, in the scientist and just contacting the professor at Oxford saying, I really want to know about this. Um, So doing this research project, I realized that whilst the the research itself was fascinating, it wasn't, it didn't um, give me that sense of completeness and fulfillment, which is what I had been searching for since the earliest of times so that, I mean, that's what um, spurred me on academically. That's what spurred me on um, in competitive sport. It was always looking for that time Then I'd feel fulfilled inside, um, which just never came. Every time you climbed a mountain, there was another bigger mountain. Mm -hmm. And I think I realized that once I was working in the city. Uh, The first few years were uh, amazing um, in terms of the kind of environment I was in and the exposure to so many and different, different aspects of the world. But there came a point in time that I realized that I had everything in my hands, but I felt so empty. Um, not because I was um, a soulless person, but because I just wasn't finding that thing. I was always looking for that thing that was going to answer um, my you know, questions and for many years uh, I'd been involved with you know alternative medicines mm. and the more esoteric aspects of life which now you would call them I guess new age but that wasn't a thing then because um, we're oh. talking about the early 90s. I think la- and... label,
0: labels change as, as generations go on but this this quest, this thing that you were looking for, do you think most people go through that. Are they all searching?
1: I think ultimately we are all searching. We just don't know what we're searching for. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I uh, like, it's awareness comes through like peeling off those layers, like um, peeling off onion skins and then revealing a newer and a fresher uh, until you get to the very core. And I think that it's just, it. it may not be, in this life that you uh, reach the ultimate answer, but we're all looking for peace and happiness. Definitely. And initially we look in the, exter- in the external means for that. And there comes a point, uh, maybe in one life or another, that there's a realization that there's no um, end to the desires externally. And so maybe the answer is somewhere else.
0: That's very So well yes, put. I
1: think everybody's searching.
0: Everybody's searching. And so I think just something you said there, like the external validations and materialism and all these things can, can creep in and maybe even pacify you for a length of time or, or for some people a lifetime. And, and you were very successful in, in the city and earned lots of money, but realized that that wealth wasn't what you were searching for?
1: Yeah, I, I just realized uh, one part was that I realized um, that no amount of money was going to satisfy um, my worldly desires. Sure. And I realized the emptiness of it all um, because I had reached at a young, compare, compared to my peer group, I had um, really sprinted through my career and you know i was one of the first people in the city to work at an american investment bank that wasn't an mba right. uh, it was our year that was the very first that got to do that and so i really was able to fast forward forward my career at 26 i was a um vp that was that wasn't common then yeah
0: i don't think it's common now anymore but i mean surely that's that's all changed so what what about like outside of this work life what was your search what was your quest like were you part of groups or classes or were there Um, people you'd heard of that you wanted to know more about what 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 was the spiritual life of a young divya brother
1: i wasn't in any groups at that point i was um moving in a circle of healers of esoteric healers um, you can say but in an unofficial uh, capacity in the way that we met up and it was only later when I had actually finished my career and that I was just aware that I had to do something else with my life that the big change came that someone said well why don't you come to my a meditation group and then maybe you'll be happy with the words Interesting. Um, they used and that that is really what uh, transformed everything for me everything in hindsight it all looks so clear the path
0: and rosy <laughs> but
1: at that time <laughs> yeah but at that time it um it seemed to be accidental and coincidental like
0: the universe conspired Uh, line these uh, opportunities up in front of you.
1: Yeah I mean really if I look back at my life now from from the moment of birth it all seems to be so clear where I was going and recently when I say recently I remember about 10 years ago one of my high school friends said to me if only we had known at school that this is what you were going to do and be like and things have been so different <laughs> you know in terms of the way we all engaged um you know and, But they said you know we realized there was something different so
0: your about friends, you your friends and peers knew you were uh, you had a little light shining inside of you
1: <laughs> well we all do that's we the that's do. the thing we all do true. and that's what people um in the difficult times um, forget and become unaware of and once you become aware of that then that sense of being lost or directionless is over because you know that you're always in the right place at the right time doing the right things mm. and that's one of the big things that troubles people in life is trying to be something else at a, in somewhere else doing something else mm. you're in the if right
0: place uh, all the time you just yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of wisdom in the last couple of sentences there I think we can unlock. Um, so for all the listeners at home, if you're stuck in a rut, if you're not sure where you are in life, if there is something you are looking for, what do we say? We're going to say look internally, that little light inside of you. Let it shine. Do the right things. Follow your dharma. And I'm sure, I think we're very sure that the universe will conspire to help you.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I have complete and utter faith in that um, through my own life experiences, that it's always with you.
0: Very nice. So you said there that you ended your career. What does that mean? How did you do that? And where did you end up?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I was at an investment bank that went through three mergers in a year. And that involved a huge uh, management change. And I just wasn't happy. Sure. with that and i came to an agreement with management which led to a payment i thought i had been headhunted by the, the last of the big four i would worked for the other big three
0: now this this is pre-2000 this is so there probably yeah. weren't a lot of people in your position at this time
1: uh no i mean um it was um uh, companies really competed for you in those days wow you know it was we we were um we were you can say like prized commodities at that point in time but i just didn't feel that it was right one one aspect was that i was being offered a big amount of money huge amount of money actually more than i could have imagined of or wished for but I had always had, since I was eight years old, this awareness that when I was 30, I was going to be doing something completely different, but I didn't know what that was. In fact, the words were that the world would end for me when I was 30 and I didn't know what that meant. And I was now 29 and being offered these big deals. And I realized that I wouldn't be able to pay pay back their investment by working for them before I was 30. And so I just stayed um, quiet and retreated into looking for what that thing was that would give me that sense of fulfillment. And when my parents you know, would say anything, who obviously were very worried having given me all of this education and I was just sitting at home with it, mm-hmm. um, They, I just said I don't know, but God's got some plan for me, and I don't know what it is, and I know it's not that they they stayed quiet. They were very good parents on that front. Fair enough. (laughs) I'm just hoping that I'd find my way through, trusting me that I'd find my way through.
0: Very nice. And so, where did you go? Where did you end up? What happens after packing your bags?
1: (laughs) Well, um, in meditation one day. I, for the first time, had that complete and utter sense of completeness inside and out. And I just knew for the first time that this was the thing that I had been looking for. And having found that, I started going to this meditation group all the time. And friends said, it's like you got addicted Mm -hmm. to meditation. And I said, I think I I was quite happy to say, yeah, I think I am, (laughs) Um, because I thought that this is a good thing to be addicted to, if that's what you're going to call it. And I started following that teacher around, Vigyan everywhere he uh, wanted to go. And he said, let's go to Palm Springs in the USA and make a center. And I said, fine, I'll go with you. Okay. And... Then whilst we're there, I, at one point, said, let's go back to the UK and met his teacher, Brahmrishi Vishwak Mabhavrajee. Okay. And that day, I realized that that was my teacher too in meditation. That led us on to Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, there were a couple of things that happened. One is that Vigyan called Brahmrishi Vishwatma Bhavraji and said, that girl that's traveling with you, she needs to come to India in June. Okay. And
0: the ultimate calling.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And um, so Vigyananda said, oh, fine, we'll we'll, we'll come to India in June. And we were going to do a 40-day retreat in the Himalayas. And then before, whilst we were preparing to go to India, one day my Marlobe, broke by the guru bead in that both sides broke suddenly and the guru bead dropped out okay. so I went to him feeling this was very oh, yeah. inauspicious <laughs> I was thinking oh my god what's about that's, to happen
0: so for anyone that does have a, a mala bead or anything like that that's that will never really happen one side may break but both sides that's pretty just by the way of construct right
1: yeah, I mean, I, I've never heard of it happening at all, ever. And so I was really very shocked by this and went to him weeping, saying, Guruji, you know, the Guru bead's fallen out. And he said very calmly, okay, just put it in the other mala that I gave you um, underneath the other Guru bee. And I said, but you can't do that. That means there's two gurus. I and uh, He said, just do what I told you, and, and
0: there'll and be sorry. 109 beads, right?
1: Yeah, but I hadn't even—I was thinking more about the symbolism sure, of having sure. these two guru beads in um in the mala, and within a couple of weeks, he actually had passed away. Oh wow! And
0: it was a sign.
1: It really was, and so packed up the the bags, went back with the body to the UK. When we were there, Bramrishi Vishwat Bhavraji was sitting in London. And he said to everybody there, to the whole crowd, that everybody was invited to come and visit India and we could stay there for our whole lives. And when he was saying that, it really felt to me like he was talking to me. You know, mm, yep. it sounds a little bit egotistical but it really was, I had this experience, like there was no one else in the room, even though there were hundreds of people in the room. And he said that I'll I'll take care of you for your whole life. And I, before leaving, I said to him, I'd like to come to India. And he said, how long, how long would you like to come for? And I said, well, I'll get an open ticket for a year and I can get a visa for a year. And, um, I was so secretly thinking I'd probably stay two, three months sure. and then go on from there.
0: So you booked a one-way ticket?
1: Oh, no, I had a return.
0: Oh, you had a return, return okay. ticket.
1: English people weren't allowed okay. an open return.
0: Open return for one year. And, and how long has it been?
1: Uh, 21 <laughs> years. <laughs>
0: you had a one-year ticket and here we are two decades later. <laughs> and you're still, and, and where are you right now? In Rishikesh.
1: Uh, Right now, I'm in the foothills of the Himalayas today, um, on the way, on the road up to Shimla. But, you know, even just a few days after meeting him that day in England, the first night in Haridwar, he said, how long are you going to stay for? And I said, 10 years, and then we'll see. And I thought, 10 years? How can I possibly stay 10 years? I can't even get a visa for 10 years.
0: Right. But managed to make it happen.
1: Well, that's all the grace of the divine, really
0: amazing so okay let's uh, i think we've done a little bit about your past let's talk about maybe today what what is it you do in india
1: right now i'm a phd student and doing a phd in sanskrit grammar which i'm just about to submit and then i'll uh, do another phd or dlit at the same time i'm part of a group of us that founded a gurukul and a charity school and a yoga festival and a yoga school and part of a retreat center as well so always always on the go you can say and do a lot of during covid obviously all of the uh, talks are online otherwise a lot of traveling related to uh, talks and study
0: awesome and for those that maybe don't have divya G on on facebook i see your updates all the time pictures of all the children doing various yoga activities and, and teaching and schooling which i think is is very admirable right if just from an outsider perspective seeing you know you, you worked at in the city in london and lots of money and now you wear a, a, a white sari and teach uh, kids yoga and, and philosophy and all things to do with and dharma it's very admirable um i don't know many people out there that that do something similar what what do you think what motivations do you have to stay and continue and do things like this
1: it's very easy truth the the value of Sanatan dharma and the value of being able to live a peaceful and happy life is priceless and i've seen that no amount of western education no amount of west income no amount of society's um, support mm. can give you these things at, that they come from inside and the uh, traditions of Sanatana dharma really not just inculcate these values but uncover the real knowledge to integrate yourself. You know, there's a Vedic mantra that says, Ashta Chakra Naudwara Devana Yodhya. And this Ayodhya word means Na Yodhya Ayodhya, the place of no battles. And I think that mankind's biggest battle is with himself yeah. inside. And through the practices of yoga and meditation and supported with the vibrations of Sanskrit, you're really able to reach that level of ayodhya where you have the integration between your limited temporary existence and that paramatma, that unlimited divine satyam jnana manantam brahma. that I think is really ultimately the quest of life. The Shastras say, hmm. Ata Chitushtayam, meaning Dharma, Arta, Karma, Moksha, Anam. Hmm. And Moksha, you know, isn't some kind of unattainable level of consciousness. It's really telling you, more as Mukti, you know, free from delusion. Hmm. And so being able to, yeah and being able to see things as they are, bringing you again to that idea of the colorless crystal of the intellect that is rather than seeing things through the perspective of distorting colored lenses. So red lenses seeing yellow and understanding it is orange and blue lenses seeing yellow understanding is green, but the ability to see yellow for yellow And also to see the redness over there and the blueness over there and understanding why everything is as it is, is a very liberating experience. And that is the crux of a lot of the problems in the world in terms of communication, because it's not just about seeing the other's perspective because you could also be seeing through distorted lenses it's about being able to see the reality then understanding why they have a um, distorted perception and why the other group of people have a distorted perception and accepting as it is rather than trying to change them Mm.
0: just even just the way you've described all of that so fascinating slightly esoteric lots of big words but I get it i cognize right we we all have our own strengths unique views talents that we bring to the world and try to shape the world around us and it isn't until and like you're saying you get into some deep internal work to understand who you are how you are why you are then you can go about viewing the world in a more cohesive manner in a more pluralistic manner something that one would argue is dharmic one that upholds the entirety for the rest of us and the the few the unique lights the leading lights we have in society that go and do that extra work and then go out and spread that message i think are, are you know to be saluted to be admired and and yeah that's amazing it's, it's really great to hear some of that stuff
1: that's really the question that took me into that meditation group that day when everything changed was this big question who am I Mm. and not being able to find the answer having gone to so many different healers and astrologists and everything nobody was able to answer that question and it was like this light bulb moment that I remembered that that guy that I'd met who had this meditation group and said that he knew me which led me to go back there and then my answer to who am i came in this sense of this um, sense of completeness and at the same time this unlimitedness
0: that's amazing and lo- lots of wisdom there i think to unlock and for anyone listening at home you know if you want to chime in or let us know what you think or have further questions please do email in uh, podcast at vicharamanthan.org I've got lots more questions to ask you, but I think we're going to enter that, that rapid-fire round, and I'm sure you've heard some of the, the podcasts before, so are expecting what's about to come. Divya G, what goes into your perfect breakfast smoothie? Blueberries. Just blueberries?
1: Oh, the whole thing.
0: Whoa, that's um, the recipe, right? <laughs>
1: Um, Apple juice, blueberries and mint.
0: Okay, interesting. I haven't tried that one. I'll give it a go. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what three items would you take with you and why? My
1: mala, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, and the third. Third one, I'm not quite sure what I, what I would take because pretty i feel pretty complete with my mala and my bhagavad gita and my sure. mali i guess to put the mala in
0: uh, <laughs> accessories <laughs> fine what's the greatest piece of advice anybody has ever given you
1: when i was at university i went back to my housemaster and um, from the second boarding school i went to and I told him that I wanted to give back my, uh, the education that they'd given me and give it back in the form as a teacher. And he very wisely told me to wait. He said, go and do a career first and then be a teacher. And really, I mean, it, he was so, so right because by going off and doing that career enabled me to get the financial independence that I'm not reliant personally on anybody. I earn nothing from, from our projects and try to do as much as I can by myself. And not only have I, you know, been a, a teacher, but I've been able to through, through my friends and through what I earned to build schools in their entirety
0: that's amazing there are some some life lessons like that you just just the way they come out and and set you up and are so esoteric in their wisdom it's great it's uh it's a pleasure to hear if you could have one superpower what would it be uh
1: knowledge of truth
0: (laughs) I normally get, like, flying or, or something
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll accept it's your It's normal don't. things for meditation, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. That's very true. Something that's fascinated me, I don't know if you know much about this, but uh, the ability to levitate. Like oh, yeah. People have complete mastery over their physical body and, and are in tune with nature around them that they can levitate. And to the layman, that just sounds absurd.
1: But if you think about it carefully, it's so simple. So you've got the gravitational force to earth, right? Mm -hmm. But when you gravitate to the divine, then you lift up.
0: Okay.
1: So when your attachment to the physical nature is less than your attachment to the divine, you lift up and this is something that you know this levitating thing is something that guruji was very clear about for us not to use our energy to do that and just sure. to uh, attain the higher states of samadhi but the swami yogananda who has been teaching me since rishi shvatma bhavaraji left the body he one day in his room didn't sit in the lotus pose padmasan properly and suddenly he came to with a smack on the forehead. And what had happened was his body had shot across the room because he hadn't locked in properly to pad mass. And so instead of going up, he shot forward.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Uh, So this is something that, you know, um, we've... um, are aware of
0: um, but it's it's not know, like it's TV. not a it's not a magic trick. it's not something you're supposed to just sort of show people oh, I can float it's It's a deep internal um harnessing of, of power uh, et cetera um,
1: yeah at hey, look um, at me, and look, also at me
0: look at me talking like I know what I'm talking about <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know I, there was another story uh, that um it connected to this is that Guruji was with a saint in Varanasi on the bank of the Ganga, and the saint was showing him that he could walk in water. And Guruji said to him, what's the point of using all of your sadhana to do that, when I can, for two rupees, sit in the boat and cross the Ganga? So, you know, There is a, there is a realism.
0: Uh, we must apply some realism to this. What is actually needed, essential... You know, for, yeah for what makes us. a difference yeah yeah totally agree okay let's switch gears what does sustainability mean to you
1: sustainability
0: and, and i use that word loosely it's sort of like the way i am able to transcribe what dharma means in a, in a western context but dharma so much more
1: well and yet, part and parcel for me, the Vedas are the ultimate source of sustainable knowledge. And when you reach a level of consciousness where there's the honing of discrimination, of knowing what to do and what not to do beyond the level of animal living, then you're really talking about ultimate sustainable living because. When you've got individual consciousness, then it's an individual choice that I'm not going to use the plastic bag, I'm going to use uh, my cotton bag that I've brought with me. Sure. But that's on an individual level. But when you have that expanded level of consciousness where there's that integration with your real self, which is unlimited, then you are thinking not just on an individual level, but your actions are reflecting the collective consciousness you know if you think about breath i am sitting in india and you're sitting in the uk but yet we're taking the same breath because the breath that we're taking is coming from one unlimited Mm. source that is the same whether it's in india or in the uk or in the usa or in russia or wherever it may be on planet earth there's no demarcation of breath there's one breath. And we're all taking that one breath, all of us, and every moment of time. And that is the measure of individual life. And that, when you understand that that one breath is one, then you're talking about sustainability on a whole new level because mm. your level of consciousness is aware of the consequences of your actions, not just for you as an individual, because you can do lots of things that are good for you on an individual level that would appear to be sustainable, but they have consequences for another. And so that level of consciousness that comes through Dharma sees the bigger picture, has that awareness of the bigger picture. And that I think is um really when you have real sustainability where you go beyond the them and us
0: yeah when yeah yeah, you've painted it so much better than i'd be able to but it's that it's when i no longer see you as the other or or i no longer see other we are all one um and the, the actions, the behavior, the way in which I act upon this world aren't just for me and my pleasure or, or security or whatever it might be. It's for the greater good. It's for the rest of society. Yeah, you, you definitely painted it better than me.
1: And, you know, and then that also brings you to being in the here and the now and having the acceptance of your position because you you are going, you will do what you're supposed to do in this life. Um, and when you have it that bigger context, it's seeing the 10 fingers on your hands and seeing that you're just one of the 10 mm. and it's important to play your role to the best of your ability. Yep. Even the Gita says that, you know, that Swadharma Dharma is more important than uh, the uh, idea of Samaj Dharma.
0: Okay. So, so playing
1: our role together. Yeah,
0: do do your duty. Be the best you can be. I, I I I've said this before many times. The best I can do for you is be a better me. So if yeah, I'm doing absolutely. if I'm doing everything within my resolve, if I'm growing myself personally, professionally, for societally, then I will act in the best possible way for for everyone, or at least I should be. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that really takes you to the um, Sanskrit meaning of the word Hindu that you can uncover. That that person has no violence in their heart and their mind to another. That is a Hindu. And so violence, you know, can be in the form of competitiveness, Mm. Mm. greediness, so many different aspects and you know it's not a a religious title it's a level of consciousness that it refers to.
0: Beautiful, what a beautiful way to express what a Hindu is and I think in today's day and age there is so much change going on with labels and redefining terms that that's something I think we all need to hear so thank you for sharing that. Let's Let's do a couple more quick questions and then we'll roll back in to the main session Can you tell me about a moment in your life where, and you probably have a few of these, where your paradigm shifted, where your entire worldview, I think you've described a few already, but maybe another one.
1: Oh, that's a really tough one because, I mean, the the very first time I went to the meditation group, that was a real eye-opener, which what happened there was that after the meditation, they went round the room and asked everybody what they experienced. And what was extraordinary to me was that the woman sitting next to me said the same thing that I had experienced. And I thought I'd just gone to sleep and had a nice pretty dream. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I, I, um, I was utterly shocked to realize that she had experienced this same one hundred percent, exactly the same experience to me, which led me to think about what is this. This is something that I, I wasn't expecting. I always imagined that meditation was for special people, and I certainly wasn't one of them. That was these um, elevated beings that could meditate, and so that was um, a big a big thing. After that second experience of meditation, where I had that complete. Sense of completeness, and then a few weeks after that, another thing that really uh, set my life on course was I said to Swamiji, So, what am I going to do? What's my savor? And the group meditation group was full of people like psychologists, and Ayurvedic doctors, and nurses, and homeopaths, all these kinds of people, and I Didn't have any of this training. I I was training as a a, a financial person. Mm -hmm. And
0: on the trading floor.
1: Yeah. And I could see that that was going to be used. That was useless um, for me in life um, relatively. And so I said, so what am I going to do? And he said, well, what do you like doing most? And I said, well, you know, the answer to that meditation. He said, got your answer yet. And so that was a big eye opener that I could just be me. You know, I didn't have to do anything else except for do what I love, which is meditation. And then everything else hasn't really been that much of a change. It's just been a gradual uncovering of deeper and deeper knowledge. Those were the big jolts in life.
0: Nice, nice. Very nice to hear. Okay. Um, What's your favorite book? Bhagavad Gita. Of course, I knew, the, I knew you were going to say that.
1: <laughs> but if you want more, I would say the Upanishads after that. Okay. I mean, every Upanishad is absolutely magical.
0: Yeah. we did a, There's a podcast episode called The Hindu Library that we did with Siddhartha Ji Krishna.
1: Oh, um, yes.
0: So we talk at some detail about some of those. But actually, and, and this is an exclusive for everyone listening in today, we're going to be launching a new series of The Hindu Library. And we're going to dive deep into each each scripture, each Upanishad, each Veda, and, and hopefully uncover more. So do look out for that if you're tuning in. Bhaviji, let's do one last one. And I typically ask my guests to uh, commit to something that makes them more sustainable. But I'm not going to ask of that of you because you are already doing fantastic work in the, in the Samaj and, and out in India. So if you had to give advice to someone else who is on their journey on the quest for truth, and they had to make a commitment. What one thing would you say to them? What one, what one place could one start?
1: I would tell them to commit themselves to their mantra. Okay. Manana traiti iti mantra. Mantra being that um, energy that protects you from the cogitations of the mind. And so, whilst the beginning um, mantra takes a lot of effort to um, practice it also eventually becomes as easy as riding a bicycle so in the same way in the beginning when you learn to ride a bicycle you do it with full concentration but after a very very short period of time you are riding looking backwards whilst you go forwards you're riding along as you talk to your friend on the left hand side or the right hand side um, and even letting go of the handles and in the same way that if you have that mantra that divine energy with you it will always hone your focus and keep you connected to that which is permanent keeping you on the uh, the right track which is yourself
0: well wow. and and for for those that maybe don't know where to get a, a mantra from is there an easy one they can start you, with or
1: the best Om because om is um described in the vedas as an udgit shabda a naturally uplifting sound and if you uh, le- look at it linguistically and hold your hand on your throat and go "ah," uh, you'll see that your throat strikes is struck by the "ah," uh, and the "oo" uh, at the lips and the on um, up in the nasal passages and so you can see very easily that when it's Externally enunciated, it's naturally uplifting your energy, so taking you um, across that ocean of consciousness, crossing the mind ultimately, and um, that also works on the subtle levels as well and the causal. So it takes you back to yourself, integrates you with yourself, and helps you to get back to no- keeping your breathing normal and Get you to that one-pointedness so that you always know what to do in every moment. So it doesn't mean that you can't do your normal everyday work. What it means is that you do your everyday work more efficiently painlessly. and painlessly.
0: I, 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 I think you've hit the nail on the head there. This, this whole sort of spiritual journey and sanat and sanatana dharma and, and you know the colour that is everything that happens within Hinduism, Western term, is not about making you do something or follow a ritual or or subscribe to a religion of the man. It's equipping you with tools and processes and powers to navigate the world that you go through. So when you do come across challenges, it's not like you don't know what to do. You are Absolutely equipped with whatever outcome may come, and you will still be fine as a result of it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the Bhagavad Gita gives a beautiful shloka describing this. It says, Diaito Vishnu, Sangasti Shu Bajaity, Sangat San Jate, Kama, kāmat Kroda Bajayati, Krodat pavatī Sammoha, Samoha Smirtivi Bramaha, Smirti Brahmashad Buttina Sho Butina So in these um, two shlokas of the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna is telling you that there are seven stages of downfall for man. And it starts by concentrating on the external objects, which leads to sangha. So that leads to the desire for those objects. And irrespective of fulfilled or unfulfilled desire, that leads to anger. Anger leads to forgetting who you are which leads to the destruction of your intellect, which leads to the destruction of you. And so if you read the Bhagavad Gita very carefully, it's actually giving you a very clear psychological journey of how to keep yourself balanced, how to samam kritwa, keeping the balances of the prana inside you focused on your goal of life, which ultimately is that um, freedom from delusion. And if you look at karate teachers or judo teachers, what did they tell you? They say you never lose your temper. Mm. Always keep your cool. And this is what the Gita is telling you way before and there were karate coaches. (laughs) is that? uh, And it takes it beyond that, that uh, it's already too late when you've got to that losing your temper. And it's telling you how to get to that position where you'd never lose your temper. And that's by having this, focus redirecting your desires to that which is permanent so you can do that with a mantra but at the same time moving like a tortoise does moving the limbs in and out as needed and so it is completely completely practical about how to keep your
0: balance awesome so for the listeners at home if you find yourself in a tough spot you feel like you're about to lose your temper or you're getting angry or there are some emotions coming up that you might not be able to sort of withstand and control. Take a deep breath, say a few orms, give your arms and legs a stretch, maybe a couple of star jumps, get their body body shape moving, and I guess just trust back in the universe that everything that's happening is happening for a reason and if you follow your dharma, things will pan out for the best. Look at me giving life advice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, when, when I left the city, it seemed like a, um, a disaster in most people's opinions, but for, for me, it was the best thing that could have happened, you know? And so always take, you know, a step back and trust, trust yourself because that, that really is the one thing you can trust.
0: Very nice. I I think we've ended the rapid fire round a little while ago. We've just merged into the (laughs) the rest of the episode where it's always a pleasure to speak to you. (laughs) With a couple more questions then before we wrap up. I think we've been talking a lot about sort of dharma and and the types of things that you're teaching to the kids uh, out in India. I guess my question is, Why is something like Dharmic education important?
1: If education is a very misunderstood word, education actually has two Latin roots. One is educare, which is education as we understand it in normal schools today, putting lots of knowledge in. But there is another word which Um, forgive me if the pronunciation is wrong, but it's educare or educare. So that's E-D-U-C-E-R-E as opposed to A-R-E. And this second meaning of education is actually uh, about bringing out what is already in. And so that takes us back to the ancient education system in India, where the yogic tradition was to realize yourself to know who you are and then do all of the studies on top of that so when we talk about dharmic education we're talking about um uncovering the individual towards the universal and giving the tools for that and then giving them the modern set understanding of the word education by having that dharmic foundation knowing who they are knowing what they're supposed to do in life and having that uh, santosha that satisfaction in every moment no matter what because everything education modern education is given for what reason to get a career why is it important to have a career to make money why is it important to make money to survive so that is basically is telling you that Um, education is geared at developing the external sadhana, the external Mm -hmm. means for um, peace and happiness when really that means is within you itself and those are periphery so it's about developing that within first and then giving you those periphery tools to navigate through nature
0: do you think that the western world could learn something from this educational framework
1: oh absolutely because that's what the everybody is struggling with about having that sense of peace and yeah, yeah. um being settled with where you are in life and not understanding why that person's got more than me why that person's got a Um, bigger house than me and that person's got a smaller house than me and understanding that these aren't the things that will make you feel okay because everyone just wants to feel okay
0: Mm, that's the bottom line I agree we are we are all if we're not on a search for the truth we at least want peace we we want to know that what we're doing in the world is, is is good and right and I'm happy and I'm content but I think what you're saying here is these tools can be taught at a young age and therefore the quest is maybe not easier but maybe more fulfilled later on in life?
1: I think in a, to a degree it is easier because okay. the, um, there's less of a build-up of the modifications of the mind if we talk on uh, a mental level. i two particular experiences in my life have stood out. One was with a two-year-old child who'd been coming with their mother and grandmother to yoga classes. And I asked her one day, you know, what do you see when you close your eyes? And she said, "Um, I see the moon. And she made the fingers showing like a full moon all over her head. So she was like seeing this light of the moon, she understood. And another child aged six, was looking at a slideshow that I was teaching them with about um, verbs, English verbs. And so I'd show them a picture and I'd go, what's he doing? What's she doing? And they'd say cooking, eating, Hmm. sitting. And then there was a picture of someone meditating. And I said, what's she doing? Thinking that someone's going to go meditating. Hmm. But this little boy stuck up his hand and said, she's seeing the sun. Oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and um that was really magical and that reinforced my um passion for bringing this to little kids because um, when you've got that as a little as a little child then it it um helps them navigate through the teenage years through university years yeah. helping them to um be free of that angst that is very common for teenagers what degree am I going to do what subjects are going to study it's a growing problem
0: I you know like growing up fair enough I had a view that I was going to go into IT it's one of my callings I I have a few verticals in life that I subscribe to but for a lot of people you're right it's what do I study what do I go what do I want to be when I grow up there's a lot of pressures and I think the word used was angst Kids these days are anxious. They just don't know where they place themselves in the world. Do we think a regular meditation class could help that?
1: I do, and combined with um, Pranayama. Okay. Really, because thought and breath are twins, so helping them to control them their breath will give them a better experience in meditation, and also give them um, a basic tool, for example, when there's the onset of anger. Um, or distress shock um, even simple things like why is that person not wanting to be my friend mm. you know having that sense of yeah. I'm okay as I am and realizing that I'm my own best friend it's and it's great to have more friends around but realizing that my friends will be my real friends that's
0: beautiful be be your own best friend fall back in love with yourself I think kids yeah. kids, kids have that Kids really have that worked out until they meet the harsh realities of the world where, for example, one child doesn't want to be your friend at school and that kind of thing. So lots of life lessons to be had.
1: It's very tough, you know. Um...
0: But it's supposed to be, right? A, a calm sea never made a, a strong sailor. Or
1: Yeah, Ben, that's something that I've come to realise as well um, about the makeup of life recently is because in the last few years, I have both my parents have passed on, and I at one point was sitting down thinking, you know what what an extraordinary world this is, because your the, the bond a child has with their their parents is a very, very strong bond, and naturally the natural way law of nature is that parents will die before the children mm-hmm. more often than not and the child is left with this gaping hole of their parents no longer being mm-hmm. around a, a, and a gravity it's a big challenge yeah it's a huge challenge and i was thinking you know and yet this is an inbuilt aspect of nature yep. so why why is that and i realized that that that's the challenge for you to understand um, the permanent as opposed to the impermanent, uh, challenging you to look beyond the limits of their individual existence.
0: It's true. It's so true. And and death is paramount. It's inevitable. It we all go through that circle of life. And like even for myself, I, I experienced uh, the death of my father. And since then, anyone that's passed away, obviously, it's not going to have the same impact. The father is quite close to you. But it's this understanding that it's a part of life. Yes, there are emotions. And I think we were talking about it earlier, attachments. You have this more to, to life and to how you think it's all supposed, supposed to be, right? We paint a picture of what we think life is, what perfectionism looks like. And then when it's rotted or tainted or the ink didn't come out in the right way and this picture looks totally different, sometimes we're upset. And why are we upset? Because the expectation we set ourselves (laughs) didn't materialize to be true. And the world gave us a harsh reality of what life is really like. And I use the word harsh. I guess it's not harsh. It's just our growth comes from from those.
1: But it it does feel, feel it at the time. And something that I... I felt also in life is that it, if I if I wasn't willing to leave it myself through discrimination, it was just going to be snatched away um, because, you know, because of the way, way my life is. There's just no point to um holding on to these things but to move with the flow of life and the journey of life. You know, as the Upanishads say, that life is it's just that river flowing between the banks of birth and death.
0: Mm, mm, I like that. And I think we're getting quite deep now, uh, Divya G, into all <laughs> things esoteric and death and life and the meaning of it all. Um, so let's rein it back in. I think, I think it's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Uh, we need to do this again. There's so much more that we can learn from, from yourself and th- the life and times of Divya Prabha is what I think I'm calling this, this podcast episode. Um, but are there any parting thoughts you would like to share with our listeners who are navigating themselves through the quest of life, going to work, raising families, doing the best they can? Is there some wisdom you can embark upon us that will leave us somewhat satisfied or pacified or put us in a better mood?
1: We've all got this incredible tool called discrimination. And it's that discrimination that can allow us to do or not to do. And it's what differentiates us from animal life. And if you look at animals, if you've got a hungry dog, you can put the stalest food in front of it or even worse, and it will snap it up and eat it all. And when their stomach's full, you can put their favorite food in front of them and they just sniff it and Wander away to something else that they would rather smell instead, thinking of dogs in particular. But human life is very different in that if we are starving, hungry, and we have stale food put in front of us, we have the ability to decide whether we're going to eat that food or we're going to think about when the possibility of fresh food would be and take a decision based on holding off eating to eat something of better quality or not we're not driven by the hunger itself and in the same way that say your mother has just given you a fabulous meal and then she gets out some sweets uh, Indian sweets and she says who who wants some sweets and you go oh no no I'm really full I've had enough that food was great mom and you go she goes I just have one and you and all right then i i sure have then. one uh, yeah and, and and so you take one even though you're completely full and this is the discrimination that enables you to go beyond the limitations of nature for um a particular means according to your choice and this is an incredibly powerful tool and we can use it wisely it will get us through life that's for sure and that is what enables us to follow a dharmic life as opposed to an animal life
0: beautiful keep separating truth from untruth use that discriminatory power and you will progress very nice very beautifully put Thank you very much, Divya G, for coming on to the VM podcast. Uh, I have certainly learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners have, have learned some and, and want some more. Hopefully we'll get you back. For anyone out there that doesn't follow Divya G or isn't aware of some of her work, please go look her up online. Um, she's co-founded a, a guru call called the International Jandramundi Charitable Trust based in Varanasi, uh, where the protection and promotion of Sanatana Dharma and Bharatiya Sanskriti with Vedas and Shastras are taught as a way of life. And I think we should all be celebrating and uh, contributing to such causes. Um, It's very, very admirable. Uh, This was the VM Podcast. My name is Sumit Sharma. I hopefully will have you tune in to another episode. Namaste. Mm -hmm.